0: Hello to all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 4 of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters.
1: Hi, I'm Emily.
0: And I'm Sophie. Each week we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges.
1: That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is
2: not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding
0: of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives.
1: It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience
2: and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with
0: something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. Kit Vincent, I am delighted to have you on the podcast. You are an award-winning filmmaker. I've just watched your incredible documentary, Red Herring. Maybe we'll just go straight to it. And ask, what is the challenge that you're facing now or, or have faced?
3: Um, yeah, sure. So I was diagnosed with a, a terminal brain tumour five years ago when I just turned 24. I was studying at university and uh, I suffered a, a severe uh, seizure. And it took them a while to figure out what it was. So it's kind of a, a quite long period of... Everyone thinking that, you know, it was different things, like it was my lifestyle, being a young person, lots of partying, not sleeping enough, that kind of thing. But I think I knew deep down there was, you know, something worse. Yeah, then eventually I, I had some scans and we got called into the, to have an appointment. And it was the first time my, my parents were separated, It'd kind of, we'd all been in the same room together for quite a long time. And they told me, and my dad proceeded to have a heart attack at that exact <laughs> exact moment, um, which in hindsight now is humorous. But I think for the last five years or so, all of us have been kind of living in this slight PTSD reality of that one event that happened at that day. Um, so that's what I have been trying to overcome and I'm you know I'm still living with it I'm still trying to overcome it
0: and as you're saying it I'm kind of responding in pinging in lots of different directions part of me just although I knew this already because I'd watched your documentary and I'd read some articles hearing you actually say it is very shocking that someone so young has a terminal brain tumor and then also listening to the way you say it is on one level like you're talking about somebody you know who you're quite close to, but isn't you. And in the other way, saying that you're all suffering from PTSD. And is it from hearing that you have a terminal brain tumour, or is it that your dad had a heart attack when you heard? or or?
3: I, mean... I, I think that the whole situation seems so uncanny. I was there, but it's so distant. Like, when you tell it to people, it just seems like... It doesn't seem real, does it? Yeah,
0: it's it's surreal.
3: If you wrote that in a film, people would be like, oh, that's ridiculous. Like, that didn't happen. Yeah, it happened to me. It's a strange way of, like, reliving the story because I remember how I felt, and it was this just strange out-of-body experience of, like, watching... And my mum's a nurse as well, so she rushed to the, the aid of my dad... And then all these doctors came running in because they like pressed the crash button, so that this alarm was going off. Five or six doctors came running in, and I all of a sudden I went from being like the centre of of what was going on to just kind of the sidebar, this, just sitting there watching this theatre happening in front of me and being completely useless. It was bewildering. It was just like the the strangest sensation I have dealt with it, and that didn't. Take too much away from the fact that I found out what I found out that day. But for my dad, it's had a real like, long-term lasting effect on him. That day was supposed to be me finding out something life-changing and then being there for me. And actually, it turned out to be him going and having to have surgery <laughs> upstairs <laughs> at St. Bars. You know, You're laughing,
0: should... but it's sort of... <laughs> because what else would you do? You'd just <laughs> cry or just...
3: I didn't cry my mum cried afterwards all of us in you know my family find humour in quite dark things and I think like it was almost the perfect distillation of like our sense of humour like if we saw that on a tv show we'd all find it funny but it happened to us so I was just like wow this finally come back to bite us all the years of us laughing at that kind of thing its happening to us now.
0: So you're saying that you have begun to deal with the challenge that you're facing a terminal diagnosis. What has it done to you? I mean,
3: making the film for me over the last five years was like the main way that I've dealt with it. It completely changed my identity. You know, it, it, I went from being a, a twenty, you know, four year old 25-year-old man with a normal life who, who liked to party and do things that everyone likes to do at this age. And then all of a sudden overnight, I just became a different person. I had to think about my life in a different way. I had to think about how my life fitted into my friends' lives in a different way, and like that—that has been the main challenge. I think you know, it's just like rearranging the kind of furniture of my life to work out like where I fit into all of it again. And I'm still trying to deal with that. Like that still is just like everyday occurrences.
0: So what is it about rearranging your internal furniture to fit say with your friends So what is that
3: it's you think you are a certain person up to a certain point and i think your whole life up until that age is about shaping your identity for like the, the next future yeah the next 25 years so you think i'm trying to get to a point of who who am i what do i like what do i care about what are my interests and then all of a sudden you get to this point where something happens to you and you're like okay all of those things that you cared about and you like doing and you tried to have loads of energy so you could do all these things and fit all this stuff into your life, all of a sudden you're like okay now I have to take a step back readjust, reassess become somebody who is different who puts a focus on different things, cares about different parts of their lives prioritises different things different people it's just really difficult. It's it's not something you can just do overnight. It takes a lot of work, a lot of willpower, you know, and it's been really hard. It's not really something that I talk about with people because it's all like a constant internal like conversation that's going on within myself all the time. It's really little things and moments when I notice it.
0: So you haven't had therapy?
3: I've had a lot of therapy, I've been through a lot of therapists, you know, I would say that I've like (laughs) almost done like speed dating with therapists. I think a lot of therapists, I find in London, I've been paying large amounts of money to therapists who then I get to a certain point with them, I have five or six sessions with them and I kind of like, don't really feel like they understand the real like crux of the issue.
0: The reality that you are going to die. Right.
3: Right exactly that you know and, it's, and they
0: walk around it
3: and it, and it's not their fault you know I'm not blaming them or saying that the way they approach their you know the type of therapy they do is wrong you have to have like a good connection with someone to be able to talk about this kind of stuff because it's like real big question <laughs> things
0: is, I mean it's as big as it gets right it doesn't yeah, get yeah. really any bigger
3: <laughs> no and I can't do the whole talking with getting no feedback. I'm a very kind of like tactile person who needs like constant feedback in conversation when I'm talking. And that helps me think through my, you know, yeah, you like need my response. Processes. It's
0: relational. You want to be received and you want that reception to then come back at you slightly responding to what you said, but also bringing you something.
3: Yeah. And I've done a lot of talking therapy where it's just like they sit and nod and listen. And right. like. What are you like? Are you just not? not <laughs> Nodding, what are you thinking donkey. about whilst I'm saying this? Like for fuck's sake, about, say yeah. something! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are you thinking like, <laughs> what am I going to have for dinner whilst I'm telling you about the fact that I might die in two years? Like, I've tried a lot of it. I'm having some um, some CBT therapy at the moment on the NHS, and that's great. Like the service they've offered me is amazing. Great. Honestly, I think the not paying aspects. For me, I'm not saying like I'm cheap, I'm just like not paying for therapy takes away this whole other dynamic, which is you're not thinking that you have to constantly make the most of your time there.
0: That's so interesting. Yeah.
3: When you're with them, you can just relax, you can be who you want to be, you talk. If you have a session where you feel like, oh, that didn't really go anywhere, or you went off on tangents for an hour. You just leave and you think oh that's fine i'll go back next week and we'll talk about you know something else whereas when you've spent a hundred pounds and you've done it you're like i've oh, just
0: you just burned a hundred quid
3: <laughs> i could have gone out for dinner and <laughs> had a really nice dinner and spoke about this with like one of my friends you know
0: i think that's really interesting but in some ways the money is a proxy also for how much time you have left in the sense that you really want to prioritise your time for it to be meaningful or to have fun or to be with someone you really love or who really loves you because the flapping around is really a waste of time when you've got very little time. And so paying (laughs) money and then not getting what you want in therapy is like a double whammy of pissing you off, right? Because what I got from your... Um documentary. You're not. Is that bad?
3: No, just pay it's like paying money to hang out with someone I really don't want to hang out with <laughs> yeah. who's just telling me shit is is absolutely true. It's like, why am I here you don't really want to be here? I don't want to be here. <laughs> and I'm giving you my money. Like, it's sadistic.
0: Yes. What I felt that the, the the documentary which is incredibly moving and beautifully made i mean i really recommend it to everyone um, listening it's called red herring was it gave you the vehicle to be you and also step out of yourself and ask really difficult questions of your father your mother and your girlfriend i love the way she turned the lights out or just said shut up and wouldn't she wouldn't participate and you pushed on anyway but with your dad was really on board with it, wasn't he? And your mum was, it gave you, in some ways, a kind of therapist camera to ask difficult questions. So it felt me, I felt the camera was your therapist, that you were using it to ask questions that you couldn't have without it.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I would never have had a lot of those conversations if I didn't have a camera and a reason to make the film. So it, Gave me permission to go and talk about my childhood, <laughs> things that maybe I would never have brought up because they did. They're not things that necessarily have dramatically affected the course of my life, but that I feel like maybe if I address them, I'll have a better relationship with my parents, you know, with my mum, with my dad and. I think just it helped us to be together. You know, it gave me like four years of being with my parents and like focusing on our relationship and the things that we want from each other. My mum, she was happy to be in it, but our relationship was the one that kind of needed much more work than my dad.
0: I mean, you said something to her, which if you'd said it to me as my son, I literally would have fallen apart. Which, (laughs) When you said to her, you should make more effort as a mother. Like, you're not, you're not doing a good mother job here. I know. And, I mean, I know this as a mum. It's really hard, that boundary between wanting to protect your child from my feelings as a mum and not putting them onto you and giving you time to be you, but at the same time, you experience that as withholding or not caring enough. And so it's a really difficult Negotiation. Tell us, the listeners, really about your relationship with your mum and how she is now.
3: My mum was adopted when she was born, when she was a child. And we still haven't really spoken about that much like how that's affected her life. I think that affects everyone's life to a certain extent, their identity, who they are searching for that kind of question of why was I adopted? You know, what happened to me before?
0: It's an abandonment issue, isn't it? At the at the heart of her.
3: Yeah, and you can deal with it, you know. And but it's always that kind of searching, I think, that exists. And then the more real impact is, you know, my dad and and her divorced when I was about seven, a bit younger. And then she brought us up. She was like the majority carer for me and my two sisters while she was working, you know, as a nurse she worked a lot she had to look after us a lot so it's a really difficult job you know like that's a tough gig it's a
0: really tough gig
3: really tough I don't hold any grudge about like anything that she had to do it was just like she was trying to live and you know, make ends meet. Cook a dinner,
0: work. And people call it juggling and that makes it sound like it's a circus. And and it really isn't. It's really tough. And she did it all.
3: And she did it all. But she made dinner. Like there was dinner on the table every night and like proper dinner, not just like, you know, fish fingers. It was like, no, you know, she she did it all and was still there like to put us in bed and stuff like that. Like Took you to the beach. I loved that. Yeah, like she was a great mum and we had a really strong relationship to the point where like, I I, we were really open with each other i shared a lot of stuff with her but then when i got to 16 i you know as i got through my teenagers i became more and more difficult when i decided to go to college which was further away and close to where my dad lived and i said i'm gonna move in with my dad she was just happy to like have one less person like in the house and like i also understand that like it's like oh finally like there's you know, just one less person around and I can, you know, focus on some other stuff. And then from then on, our relationship just kind of faded away. It just happened. It was just natural. It wasn't, there was no big event.
0: No big row, no big drama. No, no.
3: Which, you know, with her and my older sister, there was, they really fell out. There was a lot of problems with that and they have only really just even started, you know, becoming talking properly again. But then when this happened, it's, I've expected it to be a bit more like it would bring us back together, and it didn't really do that. So I felt like, right, well, now I have to be the one who reaches out and says, you know, we need to be a part of each other's lives. We need to work at this so that we don't regret things when I die, whatever. There's, I don't want anyone to just be left yeah. with these, like, feelings of, like, oh, yeah, I should if, have done if more only. or I wish I had put more effort in. But also,
0: Kit, didn't you need your mum? You needed your mum, no?
3: Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's kind of just what I say in the film, isn't it?
0: I mean, that's what I felt in my heart, but it isn't what you were saying because you were angry and hurt.
3: Well, I, it's not what I said because I found, I found doing the voiceover as well like, extremely yeah. difficult. It was probably the I, I refused to do it right until like the very end, until everyone around the film, the producers, are like, "You have to do it," and I was just like dreading it because it's you know. Your inner feelings and you're having to just like sit down and say them (laughs) and then put them in a film that you know loads of people are going to see but I guess the problem is is I was like reaching back for this like idea of our relationship when we were you know when I was younger and that isn't ever what it's going to be like but it's just like we need to have a some kind of framework where we at least check in with each other now and we you know have an, an active relationship at this part of our life, Can
0: I try a psych take on, on what happened and,
3: oh, and yeah, see yeah.
0: if it fits, and it really might not, is <laughs> that I felt that your mum was remarkable in overcoming the attachment injury she had from being adopted to being able to parent in the loving way that she did and that she really loved you. And as you were talking just now, the sense I made of it was that when you left at 16, it reignited that attachment injury of abandonment. And her way of coping with abandonment is to shut it down, is to put it away and keep going and keep doing what you're doing. Do your job, look after who you've got. But she couldn't afford to have a process of moving in and out of you. She either had to switch you off or switch you on, because she learned that coping mechanism from a baby on. And that's the only one she has in her toolbox. And she has a double whammy in that with your diagnosis, you're leaving her again. And so that is demanding in some ways of her to do something that she doesn't know how to do, which is to love you, knowing that you're going to leave her.
3: I mean, yeah, I've never I've never thought thought about it like that. Um that's a very interesting take. I, I think there's a lot of truth in that, really. All I can think of though the whole time is that she would hate to hear us talking about her and <laughs> not being here. Well I just feel I just feel bad like knowing that I'm talking about her and her not being here yeah. because she would hate that. I get that. I can't speak for her but I think no. it's very interesting and I think that I mean I she you know she says it in the film like she the difficulty that she finds in the idea that you know because of her job she knows what it's like for people to go through you know the process of dying because she deals with palliative care patients so for her to like see me go through that is that's so difficult for her and she can't really
0: it's
3: so difficult she, she finds that really really hard and that's what I think makes her the way she is, you know, kind of in the film. It's like to try and pull back and, yeah. The idea that she got she gets this from, like, this point in her childhood, um, you know, from being adopted is really interesting. I kind of wish that someone had told me that when I was making the film. I think I could have made a more interesting film. I don't know. Now. <laughs>
0: Honestly, the film couldn't be more interesting. It's so... <laughs> I mean, I think what's powerful about the film, as much as it's about your very unique diagnosis and life-threatening, life-limiting brain tumour, is that we can all see ourselves in it. Your relationship with your dad, I mean, it's a wonderful relationship. A lot of people have terrible relationships with their dad. But the way you look so alike, (laughs) and I mean, you literally, and when he was young, it's like you. So you look at each other and you see yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and it is.
3: I mean, a lot of my friends, like, when you know they see us together, they're like, if you see us from behind, you're not sure which one Who's of you, us the dig. old guy. Because now I've started shaving my hair as well since I had ready therapy. Yeah, we're just because he's bald and I shave my head, we just look <laughs> like the spitting image of each other, and it's so weird.
0: I mean, the thing that I understand with it being given a the diagnosis like this is that it's the love of others that enables you to survive. Your love of Isabel, your parents, your closest friends, your family. And I really felt the love that you actually have for your mum and her for you. And You know, I really respect and value your mum. And your relationship with your dad was more kind of expressive. I think the love underneath is exactly the same, but he's more expressive. Um, and he's more tearful, and he sought understanding through religion. He wanted to belong, having felt like he was an outsider.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd never seen my dad cry until before I made this film. Like since bef- before the diagnosis, I'd never seen my dad cry. I've seen my mom cry a million times, and the first time I saw him cry, I thought he was, I thought he was joking. I thought he was laughing, and then I realized he was crying, and it was this like heart shattering moment of being like, oh, my God, I'm witnessing my dad cry for the first time. And then since then, I've seen him cry hundreds of times, you know, in this process. I think that was like a real, you know, the film gave us this connection where we were able to just be ourselves in front of each other, have these kind of emotional moments where we didn't feel uncomfortable. You know, we didn't feel this awkwardness around each other's feelings You know, we weren't trying to kind of protect each other and not make each other feel bad. Whereas with my mum, I'm so scared of upsetting her because she's she's so fragile to me. Like in my mind, she's she's still like my sweet mum, and I'm like,
2: yeah.
3: And I just don't want anything bad to happen, so I don't want her to be upset, and I don't. So even when I'm having these conversations with her about this stuff, you're loving her. I'm trying to get to what I want to say into to the root of the matter, but I'm like still like get close to it and I can't quite like. Go through it. Exactly. Whereas with my dad, I can say what I want. And I know that he'll just be okay with it and with it.
0: This podcast is supported by Bamford. Bamford is a lifestyle and wellbeing brand dedicated to nourishing and nurturing your body and mind. Bamford's B-Balance treatment encompasses this ethos and is designed around your needs. Perfect to alleviate symptoms brought on by hormonal changes and long-term illnesses. The session starts with guided breath work and takes you through a bespoke bamboo tapping experience followed by a cooling gel massage across the whole body. You'll be left feeling lighter, well-rested and more like yourself. Bamford are inviting listeners of the podcast to experience their targeted spa treatments at their wellness spas in London or the Cotswolds and are offering a brilliant 15% off all bookings until the end of the year. Book your treatment online at Bamford, B-A-M-F-O-R-D dot com, C-O-M, and use the code THERAPYWORKS at checkout. Also, if you're keen to learn more about their new luxury private members club in the Cotswolds that provides a 360-degree wellness experience incorporating health, fitness and holistic well-being, please visit BamfordClub.com. A big thank you to Bamford for supporting Therapy Works. I think what's really interesting is When we want to protect someone, the person we love, the person we're talking to, that protection becomes a barrier to the connection and the depth of relationship we want. And the co-protection that happens in families, I mean, you probably don't know this, but I've worked with many families with children and young people or who've had children diets. It's something I did in the NHS for 25 years. And this co-protection, like I don't want to upset person I love, and they don't want to upset you. And then that narrows the window of connection and honesty. And also with doing that, the level of emotional connection, which is the much bigger thing. It's not the words that really matter or what you say. It's feeling that you can release yourself into them. They can take it and hand it back to you with their love so that you feel loved. And protection creates this chilliness.
3: It's a hundred percent true. It, it's what creates, I mean, it's, it's what stops families from like talking to each other th- about anything because you're so scared of the reaction. You're so scared of the reaction of like your, the other family members being like, Oh my God, you upset mum or you upset dad and this, and this is your fault. Then everyone just talks about these same things that they always talk about. Like oh, how's work? You know, you just stick to the thing <laughs> nice you know, yeah, that nobody can be upset or sad about. I find that boring to my family never really been that kind of family. It's like a, quite a let it all out the, on the table. Mm-hmm. And if you upset someone, you upset someone, then you apologize and then it's okay. I wanted to still be like that with this as well. You know, I don't want people to feel like they can't talk to me about my illness because I can deal with it. You know, I, I can cope with it. I know how I feel about it, you know. I'm the only one, really, who knows how I feel about it myself. And I think, especially with my dad, it's like his fear of how I feel about, like, what's going on in my head about my illness is so much worse than it actually is. Yeah. He thinks the darkest thoughts about what my thoughts are. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, they're not that bad. I'm still living a life where everything's okay and like my whole life isn't just constantly like tarnished by this doom <laughs> like all the time. And I think, you know, I've had to really tell him that and be like, it's okay. It, I'm not constantly sat here just thinking about this stuff. I do just want to talk about Isabel in the process of all of this because she hasn't been mentioned enough. And I think in the film she's like the unsung hero. And also in my life, she is that representation, you know, she's represented so well in the film as what she is in real life, which is just this kind of silent hero who is like always there for me, always supportive, but never really in the limelight doing anything massively outrageous, but it's just like they're the most selfless person ever. So giving And only the people that really know me, like my parents know how much she puts up with and how much she has to deal with. I don't know how she does it. I don't know how anybody goes through like what they you know, in this situation and then they're still able to just get on with their own lives.
0: Can we do two things? Yeah. I really want to talk about Isabel and Mm. how difficult it is for the partners and families because it's really an unbelievably painful and difficult gig. And I get that you really want to kind of acknowledge her. But can I go back a step first? Because you said only I know how I feel about this. Yeah. And I told my dad I'm managing it. Can you tell me, us, how you feel about it? It being the brain tumor. I like the way we call it. We sort of. The brain tumor. Most people, we circle around it, don't we? We talk about the diagnosis, the tumor. I think
3: of it as like. You know, it's a traumatic event that encompasses like all of these things. You know, it's the see- it's the first seizure I had, which was terrifying. It's the it's the multiple seizures that followed that. It's the seizures that I still have. It's like how often do you have a seizure? Well, n- since I had radiotherapy, they've got much better. But for the last five years, I've been having you know maybe two a week or that kind of so far. not 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 massive ones, but like enough that you know scary from, yeah yeah you know unlike, and it's the fear of being like oh is this going to be another huge one but the diagnosis the surgery the brain tumor like all of that is part of the same kind of trauma you know it's not just one of the event the events no, no. it's like the it's whole, connected the whole thing
0: so what is your
3: relationship with it i'm very lucky that i had a skill set which meant that i could put all of my time and effort into, like, making this film and then had the support and the knowledge in order to get the funding to make a film about it. Like, that was my job prior to it, and I could... You know, I knew what to do with it. The fact that I could spend the last five years with Give my family... and structure.
0: purpose and structure. Yeah, and, I,
3: and, yeah and, you know, I, I turned it into my job, which so many people don't have that blessing. Like, that is a huge thing. Because otherwise, you know, I would have spent four years not working, probably, like, dealing with all of this. I would have felt completely lost if I didn't work. You know, now I'm, like, showing it at festivals, and and now I'm talking about it on stage, doing Q&As with people, which is, like, its complete own form of therapy. Like, getting up in front of a 1,000 people and talking about this stuff is so cathartic and strange. Amazing. yeah, it's really, it's fun. Like a lot of it's yeah. fun. And, and I do the Q&As with my dad, which is, you know. Double act. That stuff's amazing. People just want to ask him questions more than me. Um,
0: <laughs> which is quite annoying.
3: It's, no, Skylar, it's <laughs> like I prefer it. That has helped ma- like massively. And my experience is no way near similar to somebody else who's, you know, not in this situation. I have kind of learned since finishing the film and after a year of kind of showing it that I think throwing yourself into something and then even if you convince yourself that it's kind of centered around dealing with the trauma that you've experienced, it can still just be a distraction and that you do need to take time away from it to like understand your feelings about it and you can't just force the healing process through whatever you decide to do. So like I'm now in that period where
0: right.
3: I- away from the film and away from the kind spotlight. of... Spotlight. The spotlight of dealing with it or like forcing this thing to happen. I now I'm like how do I feel about it? I'm like how, how what's my relationship with the feelings that I have about it? I'm not kind of capitalizing on the, the emotions you know i'm not turning it into something like useful they're just my feelings they're mine i sit with them and i'm now going through this kind of next stage of
0: that what are the feelings that you have
3: just like the isolation you know the isolation of it all is is pretty big that's the big thing i mean that's the main feeling i, I say it in the first it's just like you can be surrounded by people but
0: Feel so alone.
3: All of a sudden, you just get these like, it washes over you. Just wash and you're just like, people don't understand. <laughs> like, no. this feeling that I'm having at this current moment in time, which is just like, whoa.
0: My take on that is that you are living with an illness, a diagnosis that sets you apart from everybody around you. So that as human beings, we have this innate need to belong and feel like that there's more that connects us and that we're more similar than we're different. And it feels like with your family, you do have that. And then it feels to me like the grief you have, the shock that you have when it washes over you that catapults you away from them into this kind of icy place, which I guess is sort of frozen and, and terrified, is I'm not the same.
3: Uh, yeah, massively. And and then, and I think the isolation is kind of tied up in, in this like, anticipatory like grief this yeah. kind of feeling of already starting the grieving process yes, you are before it's happened and then like also like grieving yourself is such a weird thing like
0: that is a mind fuck
3: it's really <laughs> really bizarre to be having these feelings of like, you can understand it when you're grieving someone, or you're like, Oh, well, what's life going to be like when they're gone? And then you're like, well, what's life going to be like when I'm gone? And you, you, people have those thoughts, but they're kind of just like, full one second throw away for, for me. It's like, that's a reality. Real <laughs> so thing. I, that's yeah, a real thing. Yeah. So like, it's, those are just like, th- those are the main things. And then the general, just how does my life fit into, into the new kind of thing? And, life decisions like i'm at that age where like you know i this year i've been to six weddings you know and everyone is getting married and, and having kids and it's like i have to start thinking about i don't have to start thinking about those things but like my illness is so intertwined with like those decisions like yeah having children okay do we want to have children fine but also I have to think about my own health. What if I have a child and then I die two years later like and then I have to go through all of that and Isabel has to deal with that whole thing of bringing up a child on her own whilst living with someone that's like dying. I can't do you know I can't put someone through that but just thinking about that stuff, you know even without talking about it with anyone it's just like it's big stuff to think
0: about. <laughs> That is big stuff. Yeah. Because there are so many pulls and pushes. Like there's the part of you before the diagnosis that always expected to have children. So that's what you're you know, love expected kids. to be I'd a dad. A and I love kids. I saw you with your nieces and nephews. They're like, you adore yeah. them and you'd love to have a yeah. kid. But this isn't a straightforward decision anymore because your physical outcome could be affected by having a kid the child being brought up not having a dad after a number of years Isabel dealing with a sick partner dad to the children and then being a single mum all of that there are no clear answers are there it's just like every single one of those feels like a brick wall
3: exactly and then that circles back to the isolation when it's my friends talking about having kids and they're talking about like... Their the, futures. They're talking about their futures and the questions around having kids. Oh, like, do we have enough money? Like, well, as a house, big? that kind of stuff. And I'm like, those things are... They're nothing. Yeah, no. You can, that's, that's nothing. Like, you know, you could definitely have a kid. If I was you, I'd have like five. It's, it'd be easy. Whereas like, I'm thinking about like these other questions, which are, you know, big time. Things.
0: yeah they're huge
3: and that's like comes back to that isolation of feeling like okay you know I have to listen to people talk about those things but inside I'm just thinking no one really knows like what it's like for me to be thinking about no. that question
0: that's huge and so shall we circle back to Isabel because that links here I imagine you're having conversations with her about this like shall we get married shall we have children I, I saw that you you've saved your sperm or frozen your sperm or whatever it is
3: yeah I mean, we have we have conversations about I mean, both on the same page of like it's not the right time to no. you know, like normal reasons work and like we're both enjoying being busy with work and stuff like that. I'm sure that will change, you know, depending on like the timings of what's going on. but I, and, and we talk about it that it's not like a major issue at the moment. It's more like my own internal monologue that is having those questions with yeah. myself.
0: Yeah. How is your health right now? I mean, my health is
3: really good. Like, I had radiotherapy last November, and since then, I have had my seizures have just been like drastically better. And yeah, I'm I feel really good. I'm having another scan in a month,
0: and scans are like Joel's music to the whole soul, aren't they? Like
3: they they are the six monthly moments that break apart my life so it's like three months after a positive scan is like this heavenly choir singing in my life and then it's it's the jaws music starts again for the three months before and so like living your life with those like punctuated by those things is my i can only live my life in six months Chunks now, it's really hard. And your life me.
0: actually depends on the results. I mean,
3: yeah, it's like it's the life-changing results. So it's yeah, six months is like as far ahead as I can really think. Gosh, yeah, it's weird. I want to talk about oh, what's you know, I just think about a five-year plan, and I'm like, think about my six-month plan. Yeah, you know, it involves. Not much. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot do that much in six months, so that's fine.
0: I mean, the thing that I understand is that what helped you is your job, that you had this job that gave you a vehicle to have these conversations and a focus and a purpose. The thing that really seems to have been enabled you to stay as chipper as I see you today, and you seem chipper, despite I'm sure there are, you know, dark nights of the soul, is the love of Isabel, your parents, your close friends, but also your dark humour. Like in the end, being able to laugh when you want to cry or when you want to punch someone's lights out or kill something is a pretty good survival mechanism.
3: Yeah, well... For everything you've just said, you know, I can get quite angry quite easily. Well, just like I'm very irritated by things. And that's kind of, you know, I, I had a propensity to that before just because that's like the way my mind works quite quickly. And uh, but because of this now, I find it much harder to deal with stress. You I know, mean, everything is kind of
0: yeah. You've had a layer of skin missing. Everything right, is and then
3: everything's kind of at shoulder level, and and I can't sink let things sink in as easily. So yeah.
0: you're more reactive.
3: Yeah, and and Isabel is the one who is daily dealing with that. So she, she is the one who I don't know how she does it really. Yeah. But I mean, we met just after I got diagnosed and she still wanted to, you know, embark on this journey with me, which is, I was going through a phase where I was just like, I'm never going to meet anyone. I was like, no "No one's going to want someone with this much baggage and be insane. (laughs) Like, would? I was really going through this weird phase at the age of 24 or whatever being like, no one will ever love me again. And then...
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, there's something in it, but luckily hearts aren't logical, right? Thank
3: God, because <laughs> I would have never met well. And then, I mean, and I think because of this, we've had the most fulfilling, like, beautiful yeah. relationship where, like, we've been through the most intense stuff together in the five years we've been together, and it has just made our relationship so strong. You know, so many people go have a five-year relationship and it's never experience... Shallow what we've experienced you know we have gone through the kind of the highs and the lows of like everything you can possibly go through
0: it's a bit like you've had like 30 years in in five isn't it
3: I mean it feels like that in the best possible way you know like we're still in the like fun part of our relationship but we have this connection of like a 30-year marriage (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know which is really odd you know it's quite a strange feeling That's another thing I never expected to, like, I didn't even want to be in a relationship before any of this happened. I was just, like, didn't even think about any of that stuff at all. And overnight, I was, like, my whole perspective on everything changed and I realised what was important. Like, having people close to you is really important.
0: and Love matters, right? Love
3: matters and caring for other people is important. And that stuff is, like, so much more important than just, like, yourself and having fun and doing things to yourself even i'm still probably as well would argue that i do way too much for myself
0: (laughs) (laughs) but i think that i mean we're coming to the end of our time you know we could really talk a really long time but that's what i i'm left with from you for people and for people listening and and you must put me right is that Really knowing that you're mortal, really knowing that you're going to die forces you to change your perspective or adjust your perspective about what really matters. And in the end, of course, your life matters and being alive and well, because none of it works without that. But that and love.
3: Yeah, love loving the people that are around you, making sure that, you know, they're cared for and they care for you. Because that's the only thing that's going to be left, isn't it? When you go, them and the love they had for you, and the love that they felt, you know, that you had for them. That's there that really is nothing else that's left. That's the only legacy that really still lives on is that. And it sounds so so tacky.
0: It's true. That's
3: why there's a million films made about it because it's just like it gets to the core of what it is to be human. You know, that is really the the main thing.
0: And that's a really lovely place to stop. Thank you so much, Kit Vincent, for being a guest on Therapy Works. Do you want to say where people can find you, where they can find your film, Red Herring?
3: Uh, the film is still in festivals at the moment, so it's not online currently. We're talking with distributors at the moment, so it should be available online, hopefully. If you go on my website, www.kitvincentfilm.com. You can find most details there.
0: Great. Thank you, Kit.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week. The moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. So we're going to talk about Kit Vincent and his terminal diagnosis for someone so young. And I wonder what came up for you?
1: I loved listening to Kit talk. He just there's something so completely authentic. And I know we're not talking about the specific contents of what he said. But I think there is something very alive in your conversation together. I did also think the conversation about money as a therapist (laughs) is something that actually I think it's probably not talked about enough if you are in private practice. It's something that I think from the sort of therapist side also feels quite icky and conflicting because there is a sort of tension. I I think often, actually not very often, I do get parents who are like, I'm paying you all this money. Why haven't you like done more or done better? But much more often Mm. I have parents who are really desperate for help and just don't have enough money. And that I feel like is the conflict from a therapist perspective where you feel like, oh, like I really would like to be able to do this for free. But I also can't
0: from, you know, a practical point of view. You have to bring home the bacon yourself and a living.
1: And I also think that there's something about value in terms of considering what I have to offer and, and that sort of thing. But there is like a sort of feeling of like, I wish that I could just give you the thing that you're so wanting, but you can't afford. And I, I, I do find that really difficult. mm. And just to say, I do see some clients, like on, I have a sliding scale, lots of therapists have a sliding scale where they have a certain number of clients
2: they see. But I can't do it for everybody. I think there's also something conflicting in our relationship between being a good person and accepting or wanting or needing to earn money that somehow it can feel like less good if you're paid well for something.
0: When I worked in the NHS, I felt I had some kind of moral high ground, status, because I'm clearly not paid that much because the NHS doesn't pay the equivalent of what private practice pays. And so I sort of felt better. I think it's, a, it's not a good metric. Because I wasn't better. I was just worse paid. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Is the care genuine if I'm paying someone to do it? Is it authentic? Right. And I hope clients experience it because their sort of instinct in the moment feels that it is authentic. But often we think of something, if we've paid for it, as a transactional and therefore not authentically care or love that's being given, which I think can sometimes feel like a dilemma.
1: Yes, like you just want me to keep coming to therapy because I'm paying you money, or mm. like are you genuinely here because you
0: want to help? Mm. And can both be true? I'm wondering between the three of us now in this moment are we doing what everybody does and avoiding talking about the most difficult aspect of this conversation which is that he has a terminal diagnosis that he has a life limiting condition
1: Mm. possibly (laughs) I mean that's sort of interesting that's where me I went first instead of all the other much bigger things that
2: could have gone to when you ended and he was talking about love as the only real legacy that you leave behind when you die and that the clarity that brought for him when he got his terminal diagnosis that word legacy made me think about intergenerational and how we often talk about intergenerational trauma but in that moment I thought about intergenerational love like love as a legacy and that we can also think about in our lives the ways that certain types of love have been passed down to us. Funny enough, when I ha- had that thought, I had a very funny memory of I saw some very old footage of Dad as when he was a little boy up in Scotland, like walking around the hills and going on picnics and ponies, and and there was like lots of little snapshots of like riding and I don't know cricket and things. Um, and I had this real moment of like, oh, he's just passed down the best bits of the things he loved to us. Like those were all some of the happiest parts of him growing up. And then he's recreated that for us in lots of ways. You both have, obviously, but some of those things are kind of his side of the family. I love the idea of a legacy of love. And it also makes me
1: think of how, Mum, you always talk about how your relationship with somebody who has died carries on like the person dies but the relationship continues and i think about that a lot so we had this amazing nanny who was really part of our family who lived with us for our whole childhood and who died a few years ago and i think of her i think probably almost every day so i mean partly the the things that she says but also just like really practical things that i do for my children that i think came more from her i feel like people who really, really love you, who you really, really love. I think they sort of get inside of you, like in a way, once you've passed the sort of real rawness of grief, mm. then people are just in you that you the have love continues. Loved,
0: you loved you. The continues. Yeah. Because mm. yeah. the other thing I did look up was there is something called broken heart syndrome, which shows that you're more vulnerable to actually having a myocardiac arrest, a myocardial incident, I think it's called, when you have terrible news. Oh. And so his father having a heart attack at the moment he was given the news is a thing. It, it actually
1: happened. I, I think it makes sense because like, you have a physiological response to shock in any form, right? So I guess the more intense the shock, the bigger your physiological response.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I also loved what he said about having the important conversations. Because... I think he's completely right. I think most of us go around saying, you know, how was work? And I just thought, like, what would happen if I went home tonight and instead of being like, how was your day? Asking something much more vulnerable, much more exposing. And I think we all have this fear of what would happen if you asked those questions. But also the flip side of that is the sort of depth of connection that you get when you can have those conversations Safely. The other part of that is around the fantasy and the reality. Like, if you don't have the truth, like children for sure, if they don't have the truth, then they fill in the blanks. They don't just not think about the thing that you haven't told them. They just fill in the blanks and the fantasy, sorry, is much, much worse than the reality. Mm -hmm. And I really resonated what he was sort of saying about like his dad thinking that he was thinking all these horrendous thoughts. And actually, what he was thinking wasn't as bad. That's what his dad imagined.
0: I've really been thinking a lot about this in many dimensions. And I think what we, I've talked about it here before is this idea of co-protection, that we're protecting the people we love when we don't tell them our worry or distress or our fears. And they protect us. And I was thinking about it with regards to adoption. You know, the adopting parents don't talk about the loss they feel of like not having a biological child. And the child doesn't talk to the parents about them not being their biological parents because they both feel they should just be grateful that they have the relationship they have or you can protect each other from your own fears about living and dying.
1: You're totally right. But I think it's not just huge life or death things. I think there are so many things that we are afraid Mm. to speak about, honestly, like Just how we feel about each other in that moment, like what our fears are in a relationship, what our hopes are for a relationship, all of those things. I I think we spend 99.9% talking about like day to day life and planning, and a very, very small percentage of time of like, where are we, me and you, in our relationship, whether that's with your partner, your child, your Mm -hmm. friend. I think we're very bad at talking about the deeper stuff.
2: And I think that's where things like couple therapy can be really helpful, isn't it? Because if you haven't taken those risks with a partner or family therapy, if it's within a family, it's so scary, isn't it? To take the first leap of truth and not actually knowing at that point whether your relationship can survive the truth. Because we do some of that co-protection for fear that, that the relationship can't survive. We'll break apart. You won't be able to bear what yeah. I say, and I won't be able to bear what you're going to say. However, you can. Then obviously, you get this deeper level of trust in your relationship, this sense that you can survive hard things together, that you can be heard and hear. But I think one of the things that good couples therapy or family therapy can offer is the holding and that facilitation of what might be rocky ground when you're doing those really difficult conversations for the first time, where people can stop you falling down the same holes every time you've ha- had that conversation before or help you feel safe enough to speak out without feeling that the other person's going to be so angry that you can't talk all those kind of things
1: and also just like helping you find the words because I think sometimes we're like we're trying to explain something but mm-hmm. somehow <laughs> like it just yeah. doesn't come out or it's difficult to really express it and I think a good therapist
2: can help find the words for things yeah and I think into relationships we get into patterns don't we of ways of relating, and it can be hard to disrupt those without an outsider going noticing that you know this is a pattern. You protect me, and then I pretend I'm okay, and then I will say though for lots of people who couples therapist isn't an option for whatever reason.
1: I think things like listening to like relationship podcasts together. Like, there's the Dan Savage one, which is about sex and relationships. There's Esther Perel, where she does a lot of couples work. Also, where do we begin? It's called. She's mm. also really brilliant. Like, say you listen to one and you're like, "Ooh, <laughs> I feel like like that can be a starting point to have conversations about yourselves."
0: Mm.
1: And it's a bit a bit yeah. safer
2: because it' outside of you.
0: I'd like to ask the listeners to ask themselves and maybe their partners, what are the areas that we protect each other in? What are the topics and kinds of conversations we don't have? And if you don't have a partner, ask yourself, what are the conversations or things that I'm kind of blocking from myself or the people close in my life? I think that would be an interesting kind of point of reflection for people to use. Thank you so much to Kit for being so open and honest and warm and funny and giving us so many things to really think about deeply. Thank you, Em and So, for your thinking and for everyone listening. If this is a conversation you think would be useful or interesting for someone else, do share it, do rate and review because that helps people find us and join us next episode.